Well, this time about a year ago, our country, our world, actually, was relieved, thankful, excited, because a vaccine for COVID was available. And vaccines usually translate to us feelings of confidence, security, even invincibility. Our history with vaccines tell us if you get a polio vaccine, you're not going to get polio. If you get a measles vaccine, you're not going to get the measles. And so in light of a vaccine, people began to ride the crest of this wave of confidence emerging from isolation with a sense of security and even that sense of invincibility, which is understandable after feeling vulnerable for so long. But before long, we began to hear of random breakthrough cases. And since those cases seemed to be sensibly explained, our confidence was only shaken just a bit. But then breakthrough cases became more common. At first, among those who had only had one dose of the vaccine, and so our confidence was shaken a a little bit more. But then breakthrough cases became common among people who had multiple doses and were even boosted, so that now breakthrough cases aren't even newsworthy anymore. And so from the crest of the wave of confidence, we've descended into the trough of the wave to insecurity, to uncertainty. We no longer have any confidence that the vaccine will prevent us from getting COVID. Our confidence, our assurance has now shifted to the hope that when and if we get it, the vaccine will lessen the severity of it. And so with crumbling confidence, many people have retreated once again into isolation. These feelings, these insecurities that we all have to some extent can be a gospel moment for us. Those insecurities can take us and plop us right at the foot of a beautiful scriptural truth. This lesson for us that our confidence does not rightly belong in human beings. The words and the works of the best and the brightest and the most well-intentioned human beings often fail. But God's work, God's work never does. With Christ, we never have to be in the trough of insecurity, the feelings that the world produces in us, the shifting, the uncertainty, never has to be our reality with God. With God, you and I can always ride on the the crest of this wave of confident assurance. The Trinity hymnal puts the word of God, Psalm 146, in this form. Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He shall die 
to dust returning, and his purposes shall end. Happy is the man that chooses Israel's God to be his aid. He is blessed whose hope of blessing on the Lord his God is stayed. Our confidence must be in the word and the work of Christ. That's what we're going to see this morning as we return once again to Colossians chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, if you'll open uh, to that chapter. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find Colossians chapter 1 on page 983. And when you've found your place in the Word of God, if you'll stand so that we might hear it read together. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, this is the word of the living God. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now, once again, fulfill your good promise to us. Your word, of, your word has been read, your word has been heard, and that, you tell us, is a place of blessing. So bless us now as we come around your word through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. From these verses, we have been blessed during the Advent season to see who He, Jesus, is. He is God, the creator of all things. Verse 16, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is man, the perfect man. Man the way He was intended and created to be perfectly displaying the image of God. He is all, eight times all in these verses. All the fullness of God is in him. All creation is for him. All things hold together in him. All things reconciled through him. He is also first and must be first in our lives. Verse 18, in all things, he must be preeminent. 
We saw as well that in these verses, we, we, we have seen who, who we were, who we were, alienated from God, hostile, at war with Him, doing evil deeds, and those weren't easy things to hear. That look at ourselves ended us up in the trough of despair, but, but then we began to ascend so that we might ride the crest of this wave as we rejoice to see who we now are because of what Jesus has done for us and the body of his flesh on the cross. Verse 22 tells us he has reconciled us to God. He has made us right with God. He has turned God's frown toward us into a smile. He presents us to the Father, holy and blameless and above reproach. Though in our experience, we are not yet those things perfectly, even now, our God, who's outside of time, looks at us through Christ. So he sees us in the state in which we will forever be in eternity while we wait to be that thing here on earth. Difficult to imagine, isn't it? But here's what we know right now. By his grace, with his help, by his aid, he's helping you and me to become what we will perfectly be someday. And it's important for you and for me, all of us, to remember this process that we're in, to to think of ourselves in these terms. Look, we honor the work of God. We honor the Word of God. We honor the power of God in us when instead of wallowing in our brokenness, we remember that we are people in process. We are people who are becoming. We are becoming whole people in a broken world. We don't remain broken people in a broken world. Is that good news? Well, it is good news. And while we're relishing in that good news, suddenly it seems to all come to a screeching halt with verse 23. And that first little word, if. All this is true if, if indeed you continue in faith. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What do you mean if? Is all this good news now conditional? Maybe true, maybe not. Is this a vaccine thing all over again? Do I have any basis for security? Is my salvation now back all on me? What do you think the answer to that question is going to be? No, not at all. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul means here. The construction of the Greek, way too technical to get into, but the way Paul writes this, he doesn't write to express doubt. He doesn't write to instill fear in us, but instead to express hopeful expectation. One commentator writes, No doubt of any kind is insinuated. No threatening danger is implied. 
The apostle's purpose is simply to state the absolute accomplishment of salvation in the past sufferings of Christ, in the demonstration of it which is furnished to an individual soul in the present existence of his faith. God is our help. God is our aid. The faith that God gives to us assures us of our salvation. Another commentator writes, It indicates not an uncertain prospect, but a necessary condition and an almost certain assumption. Paul is at once insistent and confident that they must continue, and he is sure that they will, because God is their help and their aid. Yet another commentator writes, The condition is stated in such a way as to express the apostle's confidence confidence in his reader, That's you and me, because God is our help and our aid. Our confidence is not based on our personal performance before the Lord. Should I repeat that? Our confidence is not based on our personal performance before the Lord. Our confidence, our security is found in the finished work of Christ and the pleasure that it gives our Father in heaven to apply that finished work of Christ to you and to me. That's where our confidence lies. God does not intend that you and I should wake up each day and wonder if he's going to accept us this day. Or to wake up and wonder if this is the day I should die, will I make it to heaven? Or that if this day is the day that holds that sin, or that doubt, or that question that will finally cause us to fatally fall and be rejected by God and irretrievably lost. And if we're honest, sometimes we all feel a little bit like that's what we deserve. If that's what pleased God. If he thought it was best for you and to me and me to live our lives every day with that sort of uncertainty, Jesus would never have said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Our confidence is in the work and the word of Christ. If God intended us to live in insecurity, neither would he have inspired the Apostle Paul to write in Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Be certain in his work and his word. If God justified you, he will also certainly glorify you. And notice the tense as you heard what I read from Romans. Glorified is in the past tense. Even though I'm standing here in front of you and you are sitting there before me, from God's perspective, it's as if our glorification 
is already a reality. Is that good news? Does it blow your mind? That's how much bigger God is than we are. It's true because God decreed it to be so, and so it will be so. Our confidence is always in the work and the word of the Lord. One more, Romans 8 also. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our confidence is always in the work and the word of the Lord. Why is it so important? that you and I understand this truth and and latch on to the confidence that God offers. Here's why. At least one reason. Insecurity disables us from ever getting beyond ourselves. Insecurity disables us from ever getting beyond ourselves. When we are insecure, then everything we do is in an attempt to assure our own salvation, our own standing before God, our own acceptability to God. God gives us such wonderful assurances so that we can move beyond ourselves. Wouldn't you love to be able to do that? To get over yourself. Because He also calls us to a life of selflessness. He calls us to a life of others-centeredness. He commands us in, our wor- in His Word to think of others better than ourselves and to even think of others before we think of ourselves. This is how the Lord builds His kingdom in this world through His people. This is how the poor are cared for and the hungry are fed. It's how justice is found. It's how the gospel is carried around the world. You and I can't do any of those things effectively or even sincerely. Or even honestly, if in the back of our minds, it's our own acceptance that we are really thinking about and that we're really working toward. But, but, when you and I are secure, when we are confident in our standing before God based on the work and the word of Christ, you and I then have the emotional And the spiritual energy to to focus on others. This idea of our assurance is one of the most beautiful sections in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So I'll offer you now section 2 of chapter 18. This certainty of salvation is not a bare, conjectural, and probable persuasion, grounded upon fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith, founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. Mic drop. Not really. One of Kathy's 
And my favorite Puritan authors is Richard Baxter. We love him so much that we named our dog Baxter. Yes, it's true. He was Baxter Bailey, the brindled boxer. Now, our dog was not named that. It's not indicative of his stature uh, in our eyes. We just didn't have any more boys after we discovered the writings of Richard Baxter. But here's what he writes. In our first paradise in Eden, there was a way to go out, but no way to go in again. But as for the heavenly paradise, man, there is a way to go in, but there's no way to go out. Is that good news? That's the image that should be seared on all of our minds. Because of their sin, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. Because of their sin, they were banned from entering back in, prevented by angels with flaming swords from re-entering the garden of paradise and eating once again from the tree of life and living forever in their sin. What a nightmare that would be. But through Christ and his work and through faith in him, God opens the door to paradise for us. And we're welcomed in by God. And by the sustaining power of God, there exists no way for us to go out again. No plucking us from his grip. Because there is no insufficiency in the finished sacrifice of Christ when God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to us, that righteousness will not fail. We will not fall away. We are gloriously held captive in his kingdom. And so, if the if that we read here is not intended to steal our confidence, if it's not intended to throw back our salvation into our own laps, as if God had started it, but we must complete it. If it's not a warning that you and I might fall away and might not make it to the end, then how are we to understand the if in verse 23? Very simply, think of it this way, as a self-administered examination. We need to examine ourselves. Scripture says so. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. The Prince of Preachers. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. Beware, I pray thee, of, pursue, of presuming that thou art saved. If thy heart be renewed, if thou shalt hate the things that thou didst once love, and love the things that thou didst once hate, if thou hast really repented, if there be a thorough change of mind in thee, if thou be born again, then hast thou reason to rejoice. But if there be no vital change, no inward godliness, if there be no love to God, no prayer, no work of the Holy Spirit, then thy saying, I am saved, is but thine own 
assertion. And it may delude, but it will never deliver thee. And so the if is here so that you and I might examine ourselves. The if and all that follows so that none of us would be deluded and yet remained, remain undelivered. It's there to show us that we are in the faith. Look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Examine yourself. Are you persisting in faith and the gospel? Are you persevering in it in everything you encounter? Are you steadfast and stable? Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. In other words, what are you standing on? Do you seek to make Christ your sure foundation? Do you have both feet firmly planted on him as the cornerstone of your life? Do you seek to make Christ first and foremost in your life and as your source of hope? Are you seeking even now to be holy and blameless and above reproach? See these verses. Serve in his examination, not to find perfection, but to find direction. Look, every examination will reveal that we all fall short of the glory of God. The point of the examination is to reveal the direction of our hearts. Is the direction of our heart toward these things, toward Christ. Are these the things that, that we seek? And even when we fail to be these things, even when we fail to seek these things, the devastation that often results in our hearts from our failure, even that is an evidence of our faith. It's evidence that God's Spirit isn't working us. It's God's Spirit that quickens and sensitizes our consciences so that our failure becomes grievous to us. And so that we run to him for forgiveness because we are confident that he'll give it to us. We are confident of his love for us and his unpreventable determination to be our help and our aid, always our ever-present ever help in trouble, that he's always stands ready to dispense His mercy and His grace in our time of need. Please, rely on the finished work of Christ. Rely on the Word of Christ. Rely on the work of Christ. Ride the crest of the wave of the confidence and the assurance that you have in Jesus. And then move out. Move out in this world with, with confident abandon. Woo, here we go. Free from self-obsession to confidently love and serve Christ and others in his name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask now that this one thing that's often difficult for us to find in our life our confidence and our security. Make it ours now, we pray, through the power of your Spirit 
and through the truth of your word that you proclaim to us. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.